Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 158, A Conversation with Kelsey Mora. Kelsey is a certified child life specialist and a licensed clinical professional counselor who specializes in supporting children and families impacted by medical illness, injury, and grief. She has extensive experience providing individual and group services to children who have a parent with cancer And Kelsey guides both parents and caregivers on how to best support their children and teens and creates unique opportunities to help youth make connections and increase coping and communication throughout a cancer experience. Kelsey herself works in private practice and is the author of The Dot Method, an interactive tool and workbook to teach kids about cancer. And she's also the chief clinical officer of Pickles Group, a nonprofit that provides free support and resources to children and teens impacted by their parents' cancer. This is such an important conversation. We talk about supporting children throughout all aspects of cancer diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, metastatic disease, in settings of death, loss, grief. One of the questions that I get asked the most when I meet with a new patient or there's a change in someone's status, change in disease, disease progression, is how do I have this conversation with my kids? How do I tell them I'm going to lose my hair? How do I tell them my cancer is progressing? And we really cover a lot of that in this conversation and the tools and the resources Kelsey provides are really invaluable. So I urge you to take a listen, and it is my absolute honor to welcome Kelsey Mora to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Kelsey, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, So I'm excited to talk about all of the topics today, but can you start by just introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a dual certified child life specialist and therapist. And so really my whole career has been built around helping kids impacted by illness and grief. I worked in the pediatric ICU for almost a decade. I've worked in private practice. Um, I worked for Pickles Group, which is a nonprofit organization. And it's all really in that capacity of how do we help kids understand and cope with illness and grief related challenges. Tell me a little bit about Pickles Group. Um, So Pickles Group is a new-ish, we're going on our third year, um, nonprofit organization that helps the children um, impacted by an adult cancer diagnosis. So mostly kids or teens who have a parent with cancer, and um, we provide free support and resources. It's very um, group-focused, so kids supporting kids is our tagline. So we have virtual groups of kids around the country and really world um, getting together. We have groups where the kids work through a curriculum that I designed that teaches them about cancer, helps them 
process their feelings, um, learn some coping strategies. And then I also provide a lot of talks for parents and healthcare workers on how to explain um, and support kids with what's going on related to cancer. You know, it's such a needed resource. Um, You know, every study that has come out and actually a study just published today with the new kind of cancer statistics for 2024 goes on to say that um, in the age group younger than 50, that's where we're seeing the higher incidence of cancer. You know, so we're seeing more and more people diagnosed at a younger age, and those are the people that have younger kids. Um, So this is really, you know, becoming such a need. And one of the questions I can dive right in, but one of the questions I get asked often is someone newly diagnosed, and they're sitting in my office, and we're talking about treatment, and they say, well, what do I tell my kids? You know, how do I explain cancer to them? How do I explain to them what's going on? So can you kind of walk us through that and kind of maybe the different, obviously explaining it to a three-year-old is going to be different than explaining it to a 12-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A couple thoughts. So one is that's a big part of Pickles Group in terms of I speak to both parents, but also healthcare workers, because I'm sure you can relate as a physician that like, that probably wasn't a huge part of your training in terms of thinking about like what kids need to know, um, you know, about, you know, how to break those concepts down for kids. And so I do a webinar called What About My Kids? And it's really for adult oncology care providers who are are facing the patient who's asking, what about my kids? And so a lot of that context is around, you know, being honest, but it's an age appropriate version of the truth. And so when you ask about, you know, but how do we explain like actual diagnosis and treatment? Um, I have something that I designed called the DOT method, and it's really a method for teaching kids about cancer. Um, I think a lot of adults are scared of the word cancer because they know that they know what makes it scary. But when we really break down cancer as a problem with the cells and talk about how it's a different type of illness, that it's not germs and you can't catch it, um, it can be less scary and make more sense. And so the DOT method, um, I'm the author and we have, I have a workbook now, so it's actually available um, for purchase, but we also use the DOT method at Pickles Group in a group format. So kids can actually go through the DOT method together. And basically they're learning that your body has healthy cells. And when someone has cancer, their body has cancer cells and treatment. And in the workbook, I talk about all the different types of treatments, um, whether it be chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, immunotherapy, it all has the same goal, right? To get rid of the cancer cells. And sometimes we can get rid of all of them, sometimes some of them. Um, when that happens, there's side effects. And so it really goes through the whole thing in, a, in an age-appropriate way. I think that's really important. And I like that you don't shy away from the word cancer because what sometimes we've seen is, you know, kids are told, okay, mommy's sick. And then, or like, they see a grandparent who dies of cancer and they're just told that they're sick. And so then when someone else gets sick, they're kind of making that leap. Wait a second, grandma was sick and she died. You know, is my mom going to get sick? So I think using the words, at least, you know, what I talk to patients about is trying to be honest, but in an age appropriate way. In the workbook, I even wrote, you know, it's a guide. And if you don't feel comfortable using the word cancer, I recommend using, you know, language about cells, because I think it's important for little kids to understand that it's not a germ because they're going to maybe preschool and they're being taught to, you know, cough in their elbow and wipe their boogers. And so if we just say sick, they might think they could catch cancer or that if you just stay home and, um, you know, have some chicken noodle soup or some medicine, you're going to get all better. And cancer is really different. And so by teaching about the very, at the very least, teaching about cells, 
that can be helpful. But I also talk about how the risk is that someone else may use the word cancer. And we really want kids to hear these words from their most trusted adults, which is often their parent or caregiver. What about some of the side effects that happen? You know, the big one, of course, is hair. Yeah. You know, women are, I treat a lot of young women and they're very nervous about how is my child going to react to me losing my hair, being bald? Do you have any tips for that? Yeah. So I often encourage having open conversations, but not expecting to have to have one big conversation that covers everything, right? It's a lot of like small bite-sized conversations. And when adults kind of open the lines of communication with kids sooner, then those subsequent conversations can build on themselves. And so when we teach about the cancer cells and how treatment's job is to get rid of the cancer cells, but when it does that, it also gets rid of some of the healthy cells and that's what causes side effects. And so then we can talk about, you know, what are the different types of side effects? Well, one of those side effects is hair, losing hair because hair is made out of cells, right? And so we talk about, um, you know, when they go through the dot method, they're crossing out the cells and, and not everyone experiences the same side effects. So it leaves room and space for kids to learn about their person's cancer experience. Um, but, but I think learning about the treatment, that the treatment is really strong and it's trying to get rid of all the cancer. And when it does that, it gets rid of some of the healthy cells and they'll repair and they'll grow back, but it causes side effects. It might make your person feel really tired or maybe even kind of forgetful or nauseous, right? And so going down the list of what are the things that might come up, sometimes a person may know, right? And sometimes not, or you might navigate it kind of as those things pop up. What about for the children who, you know, I think I'm sure you see this, right? Some kids kind of accept it and say, okay, this is what's happening. And other kids are, you know, more anxious or fearful. Like, how do we navigate those different feelings and, you know, different kids who may be more highly sensitive? Yeah. Yeah. I always, you know, that's a common question I get around. Should we be honest with, or should we add detail for a kid who's more anxious? And, you know, the reality is kids who are more anxious are probably the kids who are creating scenarios in their brain, right? They're thinking like, Worst case scenario, what if, what if, what if? And so by giving them an honest narrative, it actually provides them with a sense of relief. Like, oh, I don't have to make sense of this on my own. My parent is telling me what's going to happen. So I don't have to try to figure it out on my own. And that doesn't mean that they won't feel anxious about what they're being told, but they'll trust that it's the truth, right? And my parents are going to update me when there's changes. You know, I don't have to wait. You know, are they going to talk to me? Is it okay to ask questions? They know it's okay to talk about. And my parents are going to update me, you know, when they have updates. But also I think that's the piece around normalizing feelings, right? A parent being able to say like, this is really scary. It is really hard. It is sad. And, and all of those feelings are okay. And when parents model that for kids, it gives kids permission to have those feelings too. Do you have advice on where is best to talk to your kids? You know, is it, this is like intense, we're going to sit down and have a talk. Is it in the car where you, you're not facing each other? It's like, you know, what do you recommend? Yeah. So I, I always recommend to try to like set the stage, right? So of course we want kids to be as well rested and like well fed as mm -hmm. possible, right? We want to give them like the, the best uh, outcomes for a difficult conversation. And I always laugh that like, 
when kids are ready to talk, they won't reciprocate that same like thoughtfulness. So parents are probably <laughs> going to be like hungry or tired or, you know, yeah. rushing between things. Um, but I do think a neutral environment, right? Like middle of the house, like not in their bedroom, not right before bed, not when you're rushing between activities. Um, we don't want to make it feel like this big intense meeting, but we do want to make it feel more intentional. And one thing I think is really important is giving what I call a warning. So saying, you know, I have something important to talk to you about, or I have something sad or serious or whatever word matches the situation, but it gives kids a chance to tune in that whatever's coming next is going to be different, right? We're not talking about, you know, what I want for dinner or something. It's like, this is going to be different. I should, I should listen differently. That being said, I do think parents worry that if their kid like go runs off and plays or a teenager, you know, goes on their phone or calls their friend that like the conversation went bad. And I always say that like, that doesn't mean the conversation went bad. It means that the kid is showing you that they've had enough. They've maxed out. Um, they're ready for a break. They're showing, they feel comfortable enough to show you what they need. And, but it doesn't mean that it went bad. It means like, okay, we've had enough for now. And we can talk about this more another time. I think that's really important. Um, cause I've heard that a lot, you know, I think, you know, it's, when we talk to adults, right. And we have these serious conversations, there's a hug or there's some sort of emotion sharing. And I think when, but I've heard from parents that when, um, you know, the child didn't reciprocate that, like, just like you said, they feel like it went badly. And I think that's such an important point. Um, especially also not talking before bed. Yeah. Yeah. And kids will want to talk before bed when they're bringing up the topic. But I think, you know, that is a time when everyone kind of lands on their pillow and the thoughts come flooding in or rushing in. And so I think having a really serious or difficult conversation right before bed can be hard for kids to kind of wind themselves down. Um, and I do have tips for when a kid brings up a hard topic. So if it's time for bed and a kid like all of a sudden wants to talk about really big, hard things, like it's okay as a parent to validate sounds like you have a lot on your mind. You know, I'm worried that this might disrupt your sleep. And I let's maybe write down what some of these thoughts and worries are and revisit it tomorrow when we have, you know, more time and, and we're well rested, right? So like redirecting the appropriateness of a conversation. Although if you have a kid who's not talking a lot, you might be really, um, you know, hopeful or excited that they're ready to talk. And so of course, every kid is different, but it can be challenging to open up really big conversations right before bed. You know, and as we kind of move into that age spectrum, right, you know, which kind of, which age is it, do you start being more honest, you know, using the words, the two-year-old's not necessarily going to follow the dot method or talk about cells, right? So which age do you think that this is like a good place to begin? Yeah. So I, I think that you know, the the beauty is you can start really simply. And even if a child doesn't fully grasp or understand the concepts, you they hear the words and you kind of build on it, right? And so um, even if you're talking about, you know, an illness, like with a really young, I have actually done the DOT method with a two-year-old, but okay. it's okay. The, the, yeah, awesome. <laughs> the, the, be, the best age is like probably four to 12, okay. right? But like, but there's ways to modify for a younger child and there's ways to modify for an older child. And so, for a younger child, I think the really key things are that it's not contagious, right? So this is a different kind of sick and it's called cancer. And you could say it's a problem with the cells and whether or not they understand that or not, you know, the dot method is actually like making dots. So like with the marker, they can do that. They can cross them out. Um, mm -hmm. But but whether or not they're comprehending all of that is not 
um, they're picking up on the changes in their environment, right? Like that, you know, mom is in the hospital or suddenly we've got all these adults in our house or people are sad or there's more stress or my routine has changed. And so giving them some language for why that's happening and then building on it as they kind of age or develop such a sweet spot from like four to six in particular, there's so much growth and development happening, right? So a kid starting those conversations around three or four, and then it changes, right? When they're five and when they're six, but you're building on it, you know, and, and I always also recommend, you know, starting with the need to know. So like, what are the things that my kid really needs to know? What's going to, what are they going to observe? What's going to, you know, be in their environment? So like, if it's a mom with breast cancer and maybe there is going to be a double mastectomy and we're talking about, you know, multiple days in the hospital potentially, or coming home with drains or not being able to hold their young child, right? Like a two-year-old needs to understand like mommy has, you know, owies right now and can't hold you. Um, But even an owie for them is different than like skinning your knee, right? So that's actually why we explain like how this is different. Um, Not because we expect them to understand everything, but we want to distinguish it from what's for me, but it's really important for them to understand why mom can't hold them. Um, that's a big change, right? That's the need to know. And then I said the one to know is like the questions that kids ask, right? And if kids ask questions, usually they're ready for answers. Mm-hmm. And what happens as the kids age and they have access to the internet, they're talking to their friends at school, you know, are they, how do they handle like, how do you recommend handling some of that information that they're absorb, you know, absorbing from their external environment? Yeah, I feel like you've like listened to my webinar. You're co- you're covering everything. Um, um, I haven't, but I'm thinking like <laughs> I, we need to do this for our cancer sector. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So so that middle age, right when they do have access to internet, potentially friends, you know, um, they may get information potentially from not helpful sources. And so as a parent, I think it's important to have that conversation with, I really want you to know that it's okay to talk about it with me. And I want you to get your information from me. And my worry is that the things that you find on the internet might not match our experience, right? Like there's some variety there. Every cancer experience is so different. And if you're curious and you want to learn more, like let's do that together, right? Or let me share some you know, reputable resources with you that you can explore. So I think it gives an opportunity to actually teach internet safety and teach, um, you know, safe ways to get information, including a parent being a trusted resource. Because I think if you Google something, I mean, I, you know, we talk to adults about not being careful with what you're seeing online, because you come across these message boards with scary, usually outdated information. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think for kids, that can be even harder, right, to figure out, like, what this means for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just being, I mean, being honest about that, right, that, like, there's some information out there that might feel really scary to read, and it might not be true for our situation. So let's talk about that. And do you recommend, or, you know, when when would you recommend maybe seeing a therapist for a child? Do you recommend it for everyone? How do you work through that? Yeah. So I don't necessarily recommend every kid needing to see a therapist because they're exposed to cancer. And the reason is I don't believe that cancer alone is, you know, pathological for mental health, right? It's a situation. It's a, it's a, it's a life experience. And I think when families are 
empowered with honest information, language, resources, support, they can they can do really well through this hard thing. But I think things to look out for in kids um, are, you know, if they're if you're seeing regression with development or um, you know separation anxiety or difficulty sleeping or it's changing, you know, their basically all those basic needs, right? Mm-hmm. Like eating or sleeping um, or you know distractibility, school. Um, those big when there's a big change in behavior that feels concerning, it might be helpful to get more individualized support. Um, and sometimes it might be temporary, it might be longer term, it just depends. But I don't think every kid needs needs all types of therapy when they're facing cancer. Um, but it's good to be mindful and watch out for some of those red flags that a kiddo might be struggling in a more intense way. That's really, really helpful advice. Is there anything in the diagnosis part that we didn't or treatment part that we didn't touch on that you think is important? I think a question I get a lot is how do I hold hope and honesty, right? For more like advanced cancers or metastatic cancers. And I think, you know, you know better than anyone, I should be asking you this question, but, but so many of these advanced cancers, like, like the word terminal is such a hard term because like people Mm -hmm. live so long with these advanced cancers. It's, um, and so I think I should shift a lot to like chronic illness, right? Like cancer is really a chronic illness and it's a long-term experience. And even you know, people who are navigating survivorship, there's still like so many challenges. And I think kids need to like understand that this is a long-term experience. Um, I just think so much parents want to fix it. Right. And there's just like nothing to fix here. Right. Like it's not fixable. It's hard. It's, it's, I wish that families weren't having to think about young kids, you know, facing cancer in their life. And so when we can't fix things, I think remembering that we can provide support, right? We talk a lot about like providing support over solutions. Kids aren't always looking for answers or people to fix it. If it, They just want to be supported. And I think validating their feelings, like it's okay to feel how you feel. And a kid might say, you know, I'm really mad that dad doesn't have the energy to play with me. And like, yeah, I get it, right? Like I get that you're mad about that and we can't necessarily fix that or change it. So sometimes it's just sitting with those feelings too. I love that. And I, before we kind of pivot to talking about metastatic disease and, um, and death, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was in, a, I don't know if you can answer this, but I hear a lot from parents that they feel guilty. Like you said, that they can't take their kids to the park, you know, or that all they have the energy for is sitting and watching a movie or that they feel like they missed a key part of their child's life because they were busy. You know, they had to focus on their treatment how do you navigate that? You know, we always tell parents your kids were young and they don't remember, but I really don't think that's a great, that doesn't help anyone when we say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a lot of reframing, right? Like reframing expectations, reframing what connection means. Like, you know, kids might have a lot of energy and they might need to get physical physically playing, but they can maybe do that with someone else in the family. And, and maybe, maybe they're, cuddling and playing a board game or reading a book or right. Like being able to say, you know, I don't have the energy to play right now. And I know that's really disappointing, but here's some things that we can do together. Actually a page in the dot method workbook, it talks about like 
the every page pretty much has a place for a kid to write or draw something. It's very interactive. And there's a page on, you know, what are some things we can do on a good day? And what are some things we can do on a difficult day? So it kind of already thinks about, you know, there might be some days that are really hard and when we, we can't do everything that we want to do. And that's the grief, right? Like the second there's an illness or a diagnosis, there's already grief of like, all the things that are different. I wish I could do this. I wish my parent could do this. You know, um, I can't make plans. I don't know what the week's going to bring. And so just holding space for that. And for parents, I think parents also want to be able to parent their kid when this is going on. So like, you know, I've had teenagers tell me like, I don't want to ask for help with my homework because they have so much going on. And then the parent is like, I want nothing but to help you with your homework because that makes me feel normal, right? It makes me feel like cancer's not everything. And so I think like having those moments to just be normal, whether it's Mm -hmm. doing homework together, watching a show together, reading a book um, and figuring out how to reframe, you know, expectations around what a parent can or can't do. There's, there's going to be shifting of responsibilities. um, But, but it's, it's not about all that's different. It can be about, you know, what's the same, what's different and maybe what's, what's changed in in a new way. Like sometimes we're making new traditions or new routines. Uh, I love that. So let's kind of pivot a little bit to metastatic disease. And we touched on that a little bit, you know, but um, as you said, you know, people are living longer with metastatic disease, which is wonderful. Um, But we, you know, there's still that, you know, thought, you know, knowledge that you're going to have to be on treatment for the rest of your life, you know, that it's not just necessarily a finite point. And then navigating survivorship is, as we said, you know, a completely different part of it, but with metastatic disease, you're always on some sort of treatment that typically does have a decent amount of side effects. So how do, how do parents talk about that with their kids? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that doesn't all have to happen in one or a first conversation. Okay. And I think what's interesting about these metastatic diseases too, is that some kids are like born into it, right? Like they're like, like, I've had parents that are like, you know, I was diagnosed before I had my child or I was diagnosed when they were really, really young and now they're five and six and now we need to have a conversation. So I think, you know, you know your family best in terms of timing and and situations, but I think um, managing expectations that, you know, the medicine that I'm taking, um, its job is that we know that the type of cancer that I have, the cells aren't going to go away forever, right? There's always going to be some cells or we're always going to be trying to keep the cells small or keep Mm -hmm. them stable. Um, And so that means that I'll always be taking medicine. And, and right, that, that that's helping me have like, have as long of a life as possible. And so I think it's like holding space for the uncertainty, the honesty about what are the actual goals of treatment. I think explaining to kids the difference between curative treatments and, you know, like long-term chronic treatments. Um, I think being honest about like, what is, what is the goal here? What are we hoping for? And that doesn't have to be all you know, hopeless, right? It's like, you know, the medicine is actually keeping my cells small or keeping them quiet, I think I say in my workbook, right? And so trying to help kids with their own expectations of what it is. It's different. You take them and you feel better in a couple of days. Like this is different. Um, and I think if kids have had multiple experiences with cancer, like I've had parents ask me, you know, what if what if my prognosis is really positive, but they lost like a grandparent to cancer? I'm scared to talk about cancer because they're already going to think like I'm going to die or or the opposite direction where like my prognosis is poor and they've had experiences where people have gotten better. And so being able to also explain that every cancer experience is so different. And even 
two people with the same cancer are going to have a different experience. And so that's the piece around like, let's talk about what my experience is, what our experience is and not, um, you know, not clarifying, you know, clarifying that, that they're, it's their own experience. Yeah. And how do we, you know, let's pivot to the really, you know, difficult conversation is, is the end of life. Um, especially when kids are a little bit old enough to understand, you know, how do parents talk to their children or about, you know, about themselves, about their, the other parent, about grandparents, you know, when we start kind of having those conversations that someone is, is dying, what does Mm -hmm. that look like? Yeah. Well, I think setting up the conversation about death and dying is very similar to setting up a diagnosis conversation, right? I have something serious to tell you. I have something sad to tell you. There's been a change. Um, you know, there we took pictures and we can see that there's more cancer or the cancer's growing or the doctors are really worried that the medicine's not able to get rid of the cancer. And then using honest language, like non-euphemism. So saying that means that that person will die, right? Then that means that if they die, their body will stop working. They won't be able to keep living, right? So being really concrete with language, especially with more of the younger kiddos, usually kids around six or seven can start understanding the uh, the irreversibility of death and dying, but being honest with death and dying, you know, from that first conversation and shifting focus. So that means that the medicines that they're going to take now are to manage their symptoms, to help them be as comfortable as possible, to have really quality days and I want you to understand what's happening so that you can help us to know what's important to you. You know, what are some memories or moments that you want to create, right? So also like engaging them in that conversation. It's not, you know, that doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do now or hope for or or care about. It's just shifting focus. That's really important. And do you recommend, you know, coming back, you know, having those conversations kind of repeatedly checking in? Or I know sometimes people or worried that's going to make their child feel really sad and they tend to not want to talk about it as much? Good question. I, well, it depends on the age. So I'm a big fan of like teenagers who don't want to talk. Like we don't need to force them to talk. That's the worst thing you could do. Like if a teenager doesn't want to talk, like that's okay. Right. Like, in fact, if we just keep building trust and connecting with them in the way that they want to connect, they will eventually feel more comfortable talking and talking is not the only way to, you know, express or process. But I think there are natural touch points um, for kids. So, you know, I find that when parents are having open conversations with kids, you almost start talking about it less because kids learn to predict, to like know that their parents going to update them when they have updates or, you know, um, we're going to have conversations when we need to, or if I want to, right. If I'm the kid and I have questions and I want to. So I think it's good to check in periodically and say something like, you know, oh, I'm taking my medicine or I have a doctor's appointment this week. Do you have any questions? Do you have any new questions? You know, everything's pretty much the same or, or we, I have, I had pictures taken and things look the same or there's an update, right? So letting them know when there's been a change, good, bad, or otherwise, but I really don't think it has to be, you know, talked about all the time. I think it's, I think there's some, some thing healthy about just having some normal moments too. I think one of the things that I hear is parents telling me, you know, they want to keep their kids' life as normal as possible, right? They want them to go out with their friends and do their activities. And, um, but then sometimes the kind of the older kids will tell me, well, I wish I knew more because I would have wanted to spend more time with mom or more time, you know? So how do we balance that? Yeah, that's such a hard dynamic. So I work privately a lot with you know, kids and families too. And I hear that a lot from teens in particular. 
Um, I think there's this piece around like trusting that you're where you're needed most at any given time, right? And sometimes that might be with your friends and sometimes that might be with your family. I also think there's this, there's this incongruence with like thinking that it's about quantity of time, right? It might not be about like minutes to spend. It might be about quality, right? Like being really intentional with those moments. And I think a parent in particular who's maybe declining or having, um, you know, cognitive changes or physical changes as a result of their disease, that can be really hard to be around, right? As a kid, like I'm losing parts of my parent, you know, before, before they've died, that anticipatory grief. And so giving kids permission to take breaks from the intensity of the illness and recognizing that like, it's about those quality intentional moments. It's not about being together all the time. In fact, that's not what your parent wants for you. So I think encouraging adults to tell their kids too, like, I want you to be with your friends. Like I want nothing more. Like that makes me really happy. Um, So that kids can reflect and, and trust that like, I did what I needed to in those moments, you know, after a parent has died too. And and what happens after someone has died? How do you, you know, I mean, there's a lot that happens at that point, right? And a lot of it, I'm sure, impacts on whether it was more sudden, whether it was a longer time in coming, but any tips that you can share, you know, after the death? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pace yourself, right? Um I talk a lot about grief waves and how you will have a lot of different waves and, you know, some are fear waves, sad waves, angry waves. Sometimes the water is like more choppy than others, right? You might get hit by a tsunami. Sometimes it's calmer waters. And I think over time, like starting to see those waves coming um, in the beginning and throughout the ups and downs, like I just teach kids and teens about riding those waves, right? Like, Like we don't have to change it. We don't have to push it away. Just like ride it. If it's a sad day, like ride the wave and, and, and really finding ways for that, those continued bonds. Um, There's so much like death is not, it's not the end of a, of a relationship, right? It's the end of a life. And so helping them find ways to stay connected to their person. um, And that can look really different for a lot of people. I think for older kids also communicating with their peers and like their school about what they need. Cause I think that's where they feel really different, maybe even isolated. Like it's hard mm-hmm. to go hang out with my friends or to like play soccer or whatever, because like yeah. there's this thing that's always on my mind or I feel distracted or I feel different or I feel mm-hmm. sad or I don't know how I'm going to feel. So, yeah. What are some of those ways that they can continue the communication or those bonds? Yeah. I mean, it looks so different for every kid. I mean, I've had kids who are really into journaling. I've had kids who make keepsakes that they're really, you know, connected with. Some kids benefit from projects, whether it be like making a scrapbook or a picture frame. I've had kids work on projects around like, what would my mom say, right? If my mom were here, what would she say when they're thinking about, you know, graduating from college or from high school or college or, you know, my first job or my first relationship, right? Like what would my parents say? Um, you know, kids who are keeping letters with their handwriting or re- voicemail recordings, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of those like ways to stay connected. Um, I've also done a lot of workbooks with kids where they're kind of creating their own um, pages, right? All about my dad or all about my mom or, um, you know, my favorite memories, right? I think there's this fear that the further I get from the last time I saw them, that I'm going to like forget these memories or forget what their voice sounded like. And so I think creating containers to hold, to hold those things. You know, there's a lot of like 
things out there where people can record their voice or, you know, before they pass, like all sorts of different ways that they, you know, there's like tangible things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if a parent is like on hospice and there's some, you know, final moments where there's a little bit more um, anticipatory grief, those keepsakes can be really meaningful. Um, Making ink prints, you know, there's a lot of like companies that make jewelry now, right? So kids will have Mm -hmm. like their parents' thumbprint or, you know, I use Sculpty clay a lot and you push the person's thumb into it and then you cook it and it like creates like a hardened worry stone almost with like their parents, you know, thumbprint. Um, I've had kids make, you know, get like their t-shirts into like teddy bears. There's a lot of, I've had um, handwriting made into stamps that can be like stamped into their books. Like there's so many nice keepsakes and for some people that's really meaningful for other people that might not be, you know, the way that Mm -hmm. they're connected. But, um, but I think, you know, my job is to help families be aware of all these different options and and figure out what feels meaningful to them. So tell me a little bit about kind of your role in helping kids throughout the process. You know, where do you come in? Someone's listening to this and, and they really feel like their children could use some additional support, you know, tell, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I would say... I think that's a piece. Pickles Group is trying to fill a gap for children of adults. A child life specialist working in the hospital, you know, we would sometimes get um, called to an adult unit, but we were really designated for pediatrics. And so I think um, figuring out what your resources are, maybe within the healthcare system, like is there a child life specialist? Is there um, a counselor, a social worker that's like worked into the to the system? Um, personally, so I. I work privately, and so I do see parents where I'm guiding them on, you know, how to support their kids, how to talk to their kids. I see kids and teens individually. I see families. Um, and so I do provide support either during a diagnosis, um, at the time of a loss, ongoing grief counseling. Um, and, you know, Pickles Group is a great resource for kids who want to meet other kids who can relate to what they're going through and gain some skills there, or if parents want to attend you know, one of my free webinars and get some educational um, support around how do I talk to my kids about this. So, so that's a, that's a long-winded answer. I do a lot of things, but I would say, you know, I work with families both privately. Um, I used to work in the hospital and then for Pickles Group, I do a lot of the curriculum design, the content, um, the trainings, and then, and then my workbook, there's a ton of resources and um, there's a ton out there. Um, my workbook is one of many, but it's a unique one in that it's interactive and hands-on um, and it's for any cancer relationship. So any child who's impacted by cancer, whoever their person is, they kind of are the artist in the workbook. They create um, they create their story through the workbook, which is, which is unique. I, I, I love that. I think having kids there's so much taken away from them in terms of control, right? So it sounds like the workbook is a way for them to just regain a little bit about that control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a big parenting piece around giving kids choices, right? Giving them a role. Um, You know, I'm going to clinic, I'm packing my bag. Do you want to put something in my bag? Do you want to come with me if that's an option, right? Giving kids a choice about how involved they want to be. Those choices help give them a sense of control. Um, But yeah, the workbook is like a tangible thing that's theirs. And they might do it cover to cover in one sitting, or they might work on it, you know, slowly over time. Um, They might do it with a parent, with a professional on their own, depending on their age. So it allows for kind of what different kids might need. One last question for you. Do something that you said just triggered this, but do you recommend and again, this may be dependent kid on kid, you know, kid by kid, but that they come with their caregiver, parent, whoever to the doctor's office 
Is that more for the older age? Yeah, I think I think it depends. I think um, it's up probably comfort level too for like a parent, like depending on what kind of conversations are going to be happening or what you know what type of appointment it is. But if a parent is comfortable or the adult is comfortable, and I think giving kids a choice um, and saying, you know, like here's what you could expect. You want to see where I go to get my medicine. You know, I'm there for a couple hours, and um, you know we could play some games together. We could watch a show together, or um, you know, maybe kids just want to see pictures of it or FaceTime from there. So I think, again, giving those choices, I think for some kids, it could be really helpful to visit and see and learn. Um, some kids are more curious than others. They're like, what's that? And what's that? Other kids might be freaked out by it. But I think giving the choice, not assuming that a kid can't handle it or it wouldn't be helpful. And and I get asked a lot, like, what if I make the wrong choice, right? And I always say, like, trusting that kids made the right choice for them in that moment. It's not like you know, picking cereal, right? Like at the same time, like as adults, we need to guide kids for, you know, it sounds like this might be helpful for you. It sounds like that might be too scary for you. Like there might be times where we're guiding them and making these decisions, but still helping them know that it was the right decision for you at that time. I mean, I'm thinking of a kiddo I worked with whose mom died when he was younger. And now I still see him for grief counseling and he's older as a teen. And, and there's a lot of guilt around like, I feel bad that at the funeral I was like playing, right? Or I was watching TV and it's like, that's what you needed then, right? And, and yeah, of course, that would look really different when you're this age versus that age. But like at the time that was appropriate, right? That was like age appropriate. Um, so it's really interesting how kids grow and develop and they reflect back on like how they handle things at different ages too. And it speaks to the importance of kind of coming back, right? At different age points and checking in and talking about those things, even if you know, um, I've heard people tell me that, you know, their kids were younger when they were diagnosed and now it's 10, 15 years later. And they've sometimes come back and said, Hey, do you have questions about my diagnosis? You know, 10 years ago, because they're at a different age and they may want to talk about it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I just think the openness and honesty is so important. And these conversations will go on for a lifetime, but that's okay. It's, you know, the kiddos who didn't have those conversations who say like, I wish I knew, or I wish I understood, or I wish I had the chance, or, you know, they're confused and they don't feel comfortable asking questions. So they internalize it. Like that's the risk, right? I think having open conversations, having tools to have those conversations is really helpful for kids because just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean that they're not thinking about it. They, they're seeing things, they're curious, they're noticing how it's impacting them. And and they want to feel like it's okay to ask. Kelsey, I feel like we could talk for hours. Um, <laughs> this, was, this was so helpful. I mean, so much information covered here. Anything else that you want to talk about or mention? I want parents to know that like, you know, your kid best and they're, you know, trust your instinct. There's no, there's no like making unrepairable mistakes. Like I think parents often tell me like, I did it wrong or I'm doing it all wrong. I'm like, no, you're doing it right for you and your family. And you're asking for help. Um, and we can like grow and overcome challenges together. So parents don't have to have difficult conversations alone. Um, and it's okay to ask for help. Um, and they and they know their kids best. So trusting, trusting their instinct too. Wonderful. Where can people find you? They want to connect more with you and see your work, buy the workbook, all of those things. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the DOT method is available on Amazon. Um, if you're a hospital or a clinic um, or a practice, I do offer bulk orders on my website. So that's childlifetherapist.com. Um, I also have an Instagram where I put content out. 
And then as I shared, I'm the chief clinical officer of Pickles Group, which is a nonprofit organization. And so that's picklesgroup.org or um, social media is Pickles Group. And that's a great way for um, clinicians to receive webinars, parents to receive webinars, or kids and families to enroll in the youth programs as well. Thank you all for listening to this incredible conversation. It's such an important topic. And I think Kelsey's knowledge and resources are incredibly powerful and I, I know will help many families navigate through cancer with children. I hope that you follow Kelsey if you don't already. And the DOT method is really just such an incredible resource as well as Pickles Group. So make sure you check out all of those different resources. You can find me at Dr. Duplinski on all social media platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode or any others of the Interlude podcast, I am always so grateful if you can take one or two minutes to leave a rating on or review on the platform of your choice, because what that does, it helps elevate the show, bring it to new listeners and allow me to keep creating content and, and creating these conversations uh, for all of you. Thank you all for being here and I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.